Namaste. As part of uh, Shobindu's writings, today we are with Vedic and Philological Studies, which form part of Collected Works of Shobindu, Volume 14. Now, Shobindu's writings on the Vedas uh, span across quite a few volumes. Um, three volumes in which we find completely dedicated to the Vedas is one is Volume 14, which is um, Vedic and Philological Studies. Then the second is Volume 15, Secret of the Vedas. And then there is Hymns to the Mystic Fire. These three are completely dedicated to the writings from the Vedas. But apart from this, uh, there are writings in Bengali which I found very, very useful. Like what is Veda, what is Vedanta, what is in the Puranas. So if somebody wants to understand um, uh, that aspect, so we'll find it there. Then there are number of letters where he speaks about Vedas, the quest of the Vedic Rishis, which we find in letters on yoga. Then even in essays, uh, we find some essays which are there, which refer to the Veda, the Vedantic knowledge, etc. And then in the live divine, something which I am sure uh, people would have noted, that uh, at the beginning of each chapter, you see a quotation. Most of the quotations are from the Vedas, the Rig Veda, 90% of them. Some are from the Upanishad and not from the Gita, but mainly from the Vedas. So the importance that Shurabindu gave to the Veda. Now, the, why did he give this kind of importance to the Vedas? Well, the simplest answer is that it is one of the works of the avatar to rescue the Vedas. In all the stories of the avatar, you'll see right from the Matsya avatar. When Matsya avatar is asked, why have you come? And it says, Vedanu Dharte. For doing Uddhar of the Vedas, rescuing the Vedas. So the importance of the Vedas because they form the bedrock of not just Indian civilization and Sanatan Dharma, but of Dharma in the in the world. Uh, what they contain are those fundamental truths which um, are unsurpassable in their, you know, it's the last uh, finding that one can ever have in terms of the um, you know, going within and finding the ultimate source of all things. So it is there in the Vedas. But in terms of manifestation, there are always new things to find, which we find, you know, improvisations in terms of outer expression in a culture, all that changes. But the fundamental findings, for instance, fundamental finding number one, that there is one stable reality behind this entire creation is a fundamental finding. Then um, people approach in different ways and accordingly give different names. Uh, this is there in the Vedas, but has been lost in sects, cults, religions, which don't uh, understand this truth. Then uh, that human soul's journey in its upward ascension to its own home uh, is as a battle. In that battle, there are cosmic forces which help the gods and that which oppose the Asuras and the Rakshasas. And uh, the final thing is that both of them ultimately help in the human ascension. So this is the uh, ultimate truth that Shurabindu reveals to us. So Vedas are a, uh, basically a body of spiritual experiences. If you look at it like that, they are not like somebody sat and started writing a grantha. It is not a scholarly wisdom. It was not written in a scholarly way. They are called Aparushe, meaning thereby there is no labor involved in it. So the Rishis received truths from different levels uh, this different levels we say now, but that time, whatever truths were revealed to them, they took it as their task to um, put it in the form of certain mantras. They sometimes would see the richas 
Sometimes they would see a truth and they would express it through the rituals. And that's how the Vedic truths were embodied. But these rituals for a long time were not written down. So this was another interesting part of the Vedas, but transmitted through an oral generation, through an oral medium. So there were people whose work was only to preserve the Vedas. So even now you will see that there are schools in which people come, they remember, memorize the Vedas. So they memorize, people used to memorize. But in the process, yes, there has had been, number of slokas have been lost. You just can't help it. But still what has come itself is fantastic. So why they preserved it in this medium, uh, one logic is that there were no paper available. Well, this is one part of it. But more importantly, because in the Vedic Richas, it is not just the word, but also the sound which is important. So how do you preserve the sound? The only way is through this medium of oral tradition. So they preserved the sound and the word and it was transmitted and uh, it always contained two layers of meaning, one which was meant for the uninitiate and the other which was meant for the initiate. So Vedas are a system of yoga, not a system actually, but finding somebody walked a certain way, had certain discoveries and he expressed it in a certain way. So it was not like a codified rigid system that all must follow this way. Different rishis went in their own way and they discovered and as the mother says, these rishis were involutionary beings that come with this purpose. When, uh, you know, in the early humanity where this kind of logic, reason had not yet come, the typal age of mankind. So, during the time rishis came and they had a direct contact with truth. Um, and therefore, what they revealed, they gave it to mankind. Subsequently, the ages will disclose its uh, truth. So, preserving the Vedas is not just preserving a body of spiritual literature but it's more importantly it is the uh, the Vedic rituals were like the sounds and seeds which were thrown into this world at a very early stage of human development which will grow into a tree so uh, it was from this point of view that we see that Shurabindu enters into exploration of the Vedas Many people um, erroneously believe that he read the Vedas and then he started writing the meaning. It's just the other way around. Shurabindu himself describes uh, when he was in Chandanagar, that's around 1910 early period, he would often see the gods come and writing in certain scripts. And some of them, the scripts which appeared in the etheric records uh, of which we have spoken in records of yoga, uh, they would be in Sanskrit. Sometimes they would be in some other languages which... Uh, no one knows. So all these scripts would appear. The richas will appear as records in the ether, etheric space. And those things, Shurabindu would see the gods coming and through signs communicating to him. And that time, Shurabindu was not conversant with the Vedas in, in a detailed way. So Shurabindu would say, when Motilal Rai would ask, what are you looking at? He would say the gods. So what about the gods? They are communicating to me something through the signs. And when he would ask that, uh, what is it that they are communicating? He would say, this is what I am trying to decipher. So when he went to uh, Pondicherry from 1910 to 1912, that is the time when he started a serious and systematic study of the Veda. Because he found there a confirmation of some of the experiences that he was already having. So the Vedas confirmed the experiences that he was already having. And therefore, he could crack the code which is there in the Vedas. The second thing is, 
that the reason he took it up was because it was Sri Krishna's one of the adesh that you know were given to him was to reinterpret the Vedas in the light of the original Sanatan Dharma. Because um, over a period of time it had lost, uh, we'll just come to that. But this uh, means of reinterpreting it was given to him by none else but Sri Krishna. Shubindra says that he gave him a new nirukt, so the grammar which was used at that point of time. So as we know that the Latin grammar is very different from English, though uh, the origin is there. So same way the original Sanskrit, the Aryan speech, was different from what we understand today. So he gave him that original key and based on that he had to reinterpret the Vedas. Uh, one of the things that we see in one of the writings in this very volume is that um, uh, some, you know, while India was undergoing that phase of slavery, so some brilliant people suggested that if you really want to enslave India, one is that you have to finish the education. Second is you have to make people feel that they are really inferior. And the brilliant suggestion that went across was that to make them feel inferior, you have to actually just translate the Vedas. This is how people thought. Why? Because they will see that, you know, this is worship of cow, this is worship of water, this is worship of earth. So now we have developed so much science has gone so much ahead. So they will lose faith in their own religion. And this is what we see happen for a long time. And Shubindu challenges this. So Vedas always contained that at least two, in fact three layers of meaning. So one was for the uninitiate where images were taken from the outer life. Even in our own life it happens. We use images to describe, oh he is so strong. So you know so strong how, oh like a lion among men. Now we don't have that analogy because we don't have lion among men. We have jackals and you know. <laughs> but you see many times in poetry it is described like a lion among men. You know when you describe Arjuna, when you describe Lord Rama <laughs> like a singer. This is a way of describing Oh, his strength, he is immovable, dread like the mountains. What is it? It's an image. Oh, this fellow, he you know, keeps on shifting like a chameleon. Not a good thing. Flows like a river. Oh, like the winds, storm. Oh, this fellow, when he comes, is like the storm coming, like the hurricane coming. Don't we use these images. So this, so simple uh, that, you know, even in dreams we see those images. Even we use in science horsepower. So, similarly in the Vedas, we see a lot of images which are um, during that time contemporary. Now, of course, in experience, one will have a change of images because uh, new images have come with which we are familiar. That time, the cow, the horse, uh, now we hardly see horses, cows are still visible. So, if somebody has to see power, probably one will not see horse. One is likely to see a rocket going into space because that is the um, idea of power now. So, this is how the Vedic images were formed at both these levels. And Shurabindu, because he had the experience and more important, along with the experience, he was deeply into uh, understanding of languages in philology. So, uh, that gave a double advantage. One, he had the experience and then he had a deep understanding of language. He had already mastered, as we know, English, Greek, Latin, French, he has written poems in French, of course Sanskrit, later on Bengali and Tamil. So, 
in the study of the Vedas, uh, Shubindu started taking an active interest because he was trying to see comparative philologies about the roots of language, where all there are commonalities. Like for instance, one common word I can say is stand. So stand is used for, you know, when we stand. Stand is also something which is can hold things, stand. And uh, in Hindi, the word is sthit. Now you see, again, it's something to do with sthit. You are stand. Standing at a place. So there are common roots which one can see in languages. So there were roots in Latin and Sanskrit and roots in Greek and Sanskrit, which he was comparing. And at that point of time, certain roots were missing, the links were missing. And guess where he found it? He founds it in the pure original Tamil language. He found the missing roots. And therefore he saw the deep connection between Tamil and Sanskrit. And of course, between Greek, Latin and the Sanskrit language, thereby taking us to a common origin of human speech, uh, which um, describes a common human experience. So, again, in speech, there are two aspects. Normally, we nowadays think of meaning, word as a precise meaning. But this is much later that there is a fixed meaning. Before a fixed meaning, the words have a fluid meaning. Like, you know, when language is evolving, nowadays we have these new words which have come up. Which uh, cool. Now what does cool mean? Now it's, it doesn't mean that uh, he is thanda. <laughs> it doesn't mean. It, it may mean he's a cool guy. He is not affected by things. Uh, many things it can mean. It's not there in the dictionary. But it can mean a few things based on the meaning we attribute to it. So this word is still in its fluid stage. So like that, uh, there are words. Words go through a period when they are very fluid. And later on they develop a fixed meaning. Um, similarly, before the word, there is sound. So sound um, signifies something. Sound itself, a lot of communication we have is with sound by stress on syllables. Poetry is all about that. How you stress on the syllables and thereby the meaning, uh, even in normal communication, by the stress on sound, we change the meaning. Go. Go changes the entire sense. You know, one is a permission. The second is saying, I am fed up of you, you better go away. The same word is there, but the sound changes everything. So, and where do sounds come from? Is there a logic behind the sound? So, many people would say it's random. Human beings uh, developed and they started uh, bringing out sound. Now, Shubindu goes further behind the sound. So, where does sound originate from? So, there are original vibrations. They want to use human instrument, develop the human instruments to express themselves. So, this is the origin of sound. So, that's why we can say that um, speech, it's in its origin is in the heavens, but its expression in our, is on earth. That's why the word vak, shabd are used uh, at once for human speech as well as for the vibration which you find in the etheric space. In If you go into uh, Indian understanding of language, it's that there are four layers at which this original vibration expresses itself. Two are concealed. Pashanti Vak and Paravak, Paravak, Pashanti Vak. And then you have Madhyama and Vaikhari, which have already it has undergone a, uh, several levels of distortion. So this original vibratory mode, it is building instruments to express it. That's why speech is such an important instrument. If you see in uh, the spiritual literature, so much importance given to speech and so much importance given to thought. Thought is one form of speech. Uh, precisely because it's in a way if we see from the development point of view it is the special capacity given to human beings the word it has a power and so much mother and shivinda has spoken about it 
but that's a different subject altogether so all this we find shobindra in a great detail uh, it is there in secret of the vedas also but there is one particular respect which is there in this book which makes it really um, unique otherwise most of the writings in this book are uh, either drafts or incomplete writings of course even incomplete writings of shobindra are a delight but the thing is that what you find here is also you will find in secret of the vedas normally in uh, usually an upgraded version of the um, whole thing so but it's okay it's um, beautiful to read it for me the secret of the vedas uh, and the synthesis of yoga were the first books that came to my hand and while synthesis of yoga was giving me a lot of experiences the secret of the vedas was giving me aha feeling because till then i had i had read i had vedas in my house upanishad the gita and i said like everybody i said it's okay but What's the big deal about these books? <laughs> Because the translations were like that, no. So I said, "Okay." Then I even tried to read Satyarth Prakash. So first time you see an intellectual interpretation of the Vedas, which Swami Dayanand Saraswati tried. So, but it appeared like almost taking me towards uh, a very impersonal kind of God, you know. So I didn't really appreciate. I said, "This is too much of an abstraction." <laughs> so. but then when i read secret of the vedas it was like aha it's so such a delight um because suddenly i discovered oh this means this this means this i started writing go means this ashu means this is so fascinated like a little baby so here we have um, of course that is for the next volume but here you have basically uh five portions one is um, essays in vedic interpretation these are mainly incomplete essays written between 1912 and 1914 so as i said i don't know why <laughs> they are part of it but it's okay i mean it's uh, because most of the material you will find in secret of the vedas so these were probably regarded as drafts for secret of the vedas according to the editors we don't know uh, but from 1914 onwards because now it was the mother asking him to write we see a totally different the same writing we see a very different impact that comes in the through the pages of the arya then part 2 is selected vedic hymns so these are translations of vedic hymns to gods other than agni um, but there are number of other hymns translated which we find in secret of the vedas and at one point and hymns to the mystic fire which contains the entire agni sutras and shobindra at one point of time wanted the entire rigveda to be translated that was the importance he gave to it but he didn't have the time especially during the arya first world war broke out so he had to discontinue and people asked him that sir why have you discontinued this is the whole world is boiling right now <laughs> so he had to discontinue it because the whole focus was on something else and the writings took uh, life divine and human cycle they were the priority at that point of time so these are uh, wonderful hymns when we read the hymns to the mystic fire we'll see some of them part 3 commentaries and annotated translations on non agni hymns and then there are vedic notes which have been found in here and there and part 5 is essays and notes on philology and there was a draft for a work called the origin of aryan speech this is a wonderful essay though again you will find it in secret of the vedas so still one can read both for the joy of reading so um when we go through these uh, this wonderful book so shurbindo explains that why this is important and how the european scholarship 
we often hear about max muller and we are very happy that he was a german who came and learned sanskrit but you know when you read through both swami vivekananda and shrubindo did not appreciate his translations must say that so while we may be happy but many of his translations didn't make sense um, if you choose that kind of grammar then for instance uh, i'll just give one instance he would say that horses with their feet dripped in uh, gritam ghee what does it mean actually why would somebody put ghee on the foot of the horse in what kind of a religion or spirituality can you come out of it but when you understand the horse is the power and gritashnu that dripping with illumined knowledge that's what gritam means then it means a very different sense altogether so the translations if you just see max muller translation they are very uneven some places you will feel that yes there is something great in it but otherwise you will feel these are all animal sacrifices and these are hymns of a very early primitive humanity which was worshiping nature that's how people have this was um, i am i don't say that max muller did it deliberately but there were people who were out to destroy the you know dharma siglani that there is no civilization like india and we have to make it civilized now just imagine if india went that way there are countries which completely took the western color and they changed you see many of the countries either there was a islamic invasion they became islamicized or they became anglicized you see this is a fact of you know history but india not only resisted absorbed integrated which is an amazing you know when we look at history it's one of the most amazing things that ever happened how could it do it so one of the one of the main heroes behind it is shirbindo because he made the indian people realize that no don't go by what the european scholars are saying and for that what he did was it was not only european scholars even sayana because he uses again the uh, old method and he was not a yogi so he used grammar and as i said it's not just about grammar it were deep spiritual experiences and that shirbindo brings into this um, entire range of vedic writings that they are very profound spiritual experiences which he encountered during the course of his uh, yoga and which all of us can encounter do encounter for ex- for instance let me just read one of them um um so there is a interesting colloquy in in the vedas on agastya and indra so often when you see in puranas you see indra suddenly his singhasan begins to dolo for whatever reason and you know he starts sending the rishis back to earth now i have spoken about it elsewhere but here there is a colloquy between agastya and indra so agastya at a stage of his tapasya finds that indra is not giving him the way so agastya tells indra why are you doing this to me <laughs> i am taking the path of straight path of ascension so why are you blocking my way why don't you allow me to go why is it that you know the maruts uh, they are your brothers why are you fighting with them maruts are those thought currents is, why are you uh, blocking them why don't you allow them to freely expand and then indra says well you are wanting to do the ascension but you know still what has been poured into you it is also going into uh 
certain activities which are like ego bound you are not yet completely freed from it and till that happens i will not allow you to ascend so he gives a into agast now this is so true in our own uh, you know when we uh, move into the yogic processes then we discover initially it's all so easy but as we advance more and more and shrivindra would say very uh, beautifully that you know uh, when you are going on the scooter very slow then uh, it's okay even if you come across uh, things you can navigate but if you are going fast a pebble is enough to throw you off gear so as we pick up speed in the yoga as we begin to ascend you see when a f- aircraft is ascending high uh, such a wonderful machine moving at um, greater than the speed of sound one bird has to hit it and it comes crashing down so as we fly higher and higher of course there is a grace element that's why he knew that this yoga is so in the colloquy between agastya and indra which is one of the well known colloquies but if you read it uh, the way it is described in the typical translations of the vedas i had at least read this story i said but what is this i mean why is he coming in the way why indra is coming in the way why is he blocking nothing is explained there nothing becomes clear it's like just um, he will just like a stubborn king saying no i don't allow you that's it <laughs> for whatever reason so when you read this you understand there is a whole Uh, chapter on agastya and the colloquy between agastya and indra uh, this is again there in secret of the vedas so there are some of the stories like saraswati and the waters so saraswati is the goddess of learning of speech of inspiration of revelation so who are her sisters so all these things we'll find in some of the stories which are given here so this whole colloquy starts with a uh, verse Uh, it would seem by indra one of the most remarkable tricks in the whole veda so this uh, indra in the vedas is different from indra is in the puranas you must understand so indra in the vedas is the highest god uh, he is the one who has the global consciousness probably at the heights of the over mind he is sitting so he has sahasrakshi you can see everywhere in the puranas he is you know brought down to another deity the name is the same but so he he reveals to he says it is not now not tomorrow who knoweth that which is utterly wonderful its movement has for its field the knowledge of another but when it is approached it disappears to this allocation which might have come straight out of the deepest passages of the upanishads agast replies by complaint So he says, "Who can speak of it? Who can reach it? It's wonderful beyond wonders." So Agastya says, "Why, O Indra, wouldst thou slay us? The Maruts are thy brothers. With them do thou work for our perfections. Smite us not in a struggle." So if we really read through the um, stories in the Purana, so Indra is supposed to have actually uh, when Maruts were in the womb. So that's the time he sends his Vajra, and the Maruts split into forty-nine. Uh, parts so that's how we have the 49 maruts so if you read the story just as it is look like a very crude story what is indra doing you know slaying a child in the womb and is breaking into 49 parts now 49 is a very interesting figure <laughs> because 49 and 49 and if you add to it makes 100 perfection so what are these 49 maruts they are 49 if you take the seven planes so seven times seven so they are the movements of uh, maruts are always you know why you that 
power which expresses itself through the it's a power that expresses it's the expressive vital in human beings it is the speech so what are these maruts and why he wants them to go all around not just only in one particular field so indra splits them in the womb that otherwise no doubt it'll be a formidable power but it will not be all encompassing so he doesn't uh, slay or split the maruts he makes them manifold so but if you read the traditional translation we see this is the kind of god that indra is so august asks him indra defends himself justifies the blows he has struck wherefore o my brother august does thou thou our comrade think beyond us verily we know of thee how to us thou willest not to give the offering of thy mind let them make the altar ready let them kindle utterly agni in front there is the awakening to immortality let us too extend thy sacrifice august eels and consents thou art the master o lord of substance among the vasus thou utterly disposest o lord of love among the mitras indra do the whole talk with the maruts taste in the truth the offerings so shurbindo says very interestingly it seems to me that the sense of this little hymn so beautiful simple and profound in its expression and substance is perfectly straightforward we'll find it difficult to you know if you just read the hymn it'll be like <laughs> what is so but this is the difference when a person has done the yoga so he says and only a preconceived theory or a perverse ingenuity can lead us astray that which is neither now nor tomorrow that's what indra says but beyond all time the wonderful thing which no man can know that which reveals itself by its activity in the consciousness of another in ourselves in indra in the maruts in every living being or active force but if we seek to approach study and seize it vanishes from our ken is the brahman so he says that if you try to seize him and you say i have it i have found god so he says that means you have fooled yourself because you cannot seize you cannot possess him it's like the moment you try to grasp by the mind he vanishes he can reveal himself to your mind but if you try to grasp him by the mind through the mental understanding it will vanish but he can reveal and he will reveal whatever he reveals it reveals she reveals doesn't matter only that much you can know so this is the first part where you know indra starts no other conception of indian thought fits this profound and subtle description what sublime and numerous echoes wake in our memory as we repeat this mantra there comes to us the solemn stanza of the gita ashcharyavat pashyati kashchidenam there come the words of the mandukya upanishad yachanta trikalatitam the solemn assertion of the kena natatra vaga gachati namana its subtle distinction avigyatam vijanatam vigyatam avigyanatam vividly there comes the great fable of the mighty yaksha who stood before the gods in the kena upanishad he is referring to and who says that catch me if you can this is my <laughs> so you can't catch him you try to catch him he vanishes so there is the unknowable you can the mind can pursue up to a point and will vanish so that's where indra comes to remind agastya agastya you are trying too much with the mind it will vanish so <clears throat> this is a stage in uh, agastya but why does indra cast this assertion of the unknowability of brahman at agast in their quarrel his self justification in the third trick explains the motive 
Agastya has been seeking to go beyond Indra in his thought consciousness. He has been seeking to exceed mind and arrive straight at Brahman. To place his mind and its activities not on the altar of the Lord of mind, but on the altar of the unknown God. Not so, says Indra, shall thou attain. Through me, through the mind, through thy mental consciousness, thou shalt aspire to that which is wonderful. So, you see, this is very interesting in Zen Buddhism, for instance. You say that he is beyond mind. So, what do some people say? Drop the mind. That's not the path. Purify, refine, stretch it, take it to the utmost limits and lay it on the altar of the all-wonderful. May all the thoughts strive to reach and lay it. So, it's a paradox. Thought cannot cease. But at the same time, it is by stretching the thought and laying it at the altar as a sacrifice to the one divine that he reveals himself to us. Because that's how the mind becomes ready to receive the infinite. So, this is how it is described. He perceives, Agas seeks to pacify Indra. He perceives that through the hostility of Indra, his mind refuses to work towards perfection, towards Siddhi in the yoga. In his strain was struggling upward. It no longer helps but resists him. There is a divorce between his mental energies presided over by the Maruts and their great presiding and fulfilling Devata. Confusion, failure of thought, error, backsliding is the result. They went through all this, okay? So don't... <laughs> Why wouldst thou slay me, he cries. I am but moving towards my goal. The Maruts are thy brother's thoughts. Why art thou in disagreement with them? Rather with them as thy allies... And help us do thy work of thinking in me in a way effective of my perfection. And strike me not down. The sense of Indra's reply is perfectly clear. We are brothers, O Agastya. Sons of the same immortal being. We are friends and comrades. We have fought together the great Aryan battle against the fiends and giants and titans. The battle of the soul struggling towards immortality. But now you regard us us as too little for you and seek to shoot beyond us. You think that, you know, thought and thinking, there are people who speak of that, oh, reason, all this has to be dropped. Thinking, just leave it because that is beyond. He says, you are trying that. So it's not the path of perfection. You can arrive at moksha through that, but not perfection. Perfection means you take the whole being (laughs) together. So he says, you are thinking, it's too small. We have seen how you are no longer willing to give the offering of your mind and its activities to us as of old. You are directing them elsewhere. This cannot be. You must not become the other shoes and cease from the sacrifice decreed. Make ready the altar of the body and mind. Kindle the fire of the divine force upon it in front of you. Let Agni stand as your Purohit. This is the way decreed in the sacrifice to the right devatas and not otherwise the soul of man awakens out of this death into that immortality. So it would practically mean that when the mind is brilliant and you divert it towards making money, I am using now a very common, or if you divert it towards satisfying and fulfilling your ambitions, then he says, this fellow is, you know, there are people, you see, they go to Harvard universities and elsewhere and they want name and fame, wealth out of that brilliance of the mind. Is then the mind cannot uh, develop that kind of, it cannot know the divine, know the Brahman. So you have to be one-pointed. You have to let the Agni constantly move in front. And Agni moving in the front means the seeking 
to know more and more of the divine for the sake of the divine for the joy of the divine for the service of the divine not like i want to know so that i can write uh, you know nice books on god <laughs> so that's not how one has to go so he says seek not to this is the way decreed seek not to stand apart from me take my aid and let us two together extend the increasing sacrifice to its last fulfillment and culmination through mind fulfilled go beyond mind to brahman agast taught by experience sees his error he accepts the law of the sacrifice yes he cries i seek widened being Thou among the lords of being art the chief master. Thou art master to give or deny. I seek infinite joy in love. Thou among the masters of love and joy art its most potent and liberal disposer. Come then into agreement with the maruts and create the harmony of my thoughts. So basically, it's like supposing a mind is very narrow and small. Practical terms, it is very rigid. It cannot realize the divine. you may have some experience and be lost in this so the ways to make the mind plastic supple wide immobile this exactly what the mother explains that if you want the supramental truth to manifest through the mind first make it wide so she gives very simple exercises but if you are rigid dogmatic all about thus alone and no then you cannot realize it you will be stopped you may live in the illusion some experience or something and feel that you have got something but if one really wants to arrive at the highest state of perfection then you have to use the mind and the maruts the thoughts direct them towards the divine think of the divine if you want to put it like mother's ways and direct the thoughts towards the divine as an offering at the altar and then joy love truth all these will begin to manifest So uh, the C. Shubhendu then says that the hymn throws a flood of light on the persistent tales of the Puranas and Itihas, and uh, he closes with this: "It is the powers of mind that seek to preserve their activity in the human being. I will understand only by analysis or by belief." He says they seek to preserve, and do not wish him stilling these activities to pass into the silent Brahman, in the Vedic ideal. Indra does not need to be an enemy. He is the best friend of the seeker, because uh, because the idol of the Vedic rishis is fulfillment and not cessation. So between the rational mind, analytical mind, and the supramental, there are several layers through which uh, various possibilities of inspiration, revelation, intuition, illumination, all these have to be awakened. That's why you know satyam, ritam, brahatam towards vastnesses, and then the mind becomes ready. Uh, to really receive that light otherwise mother says you are like a little point uh, ego is like a little pin point how will super mind find place so this is what is described here but still a time comes when the average vedic yogin seeks to shoot by a shortcut beyond so the term is spiritual bypassing i want to just leave the world and bypass world will not leave you so easily ha huh? <laughs> so especially when you come here mother has made this is a really the divine tilasm tilasm nagar you can't you know she is a magic builder this place is built in such a way you want to run away from the world she say okay wait it will come to you till you have really are ready to go beyond it it will come that challenge will keep coming and you have to understand it's a challenge 
you have to keep going inside keep cultivating sincerity from the practical point of view this is what it means <laughs> so she, she says uh, an average vedic yogin seeks to shoot by shortcut beyond to dispense with tapasya and sacrifice and leap straight to the heights where all things are still he is in danger of using the wrong means following the wrong ideal it is such a moment in his soul experience that agastya records the attempt the resistance of indra the strife the salutary failure the perception of failure the reconciliation submission and recovered harmony so that's why you know when people write let us say um poetry and all this so it has this meaning because you know uh through this the mind begins to expand grow further into it becomes more refined subtlety seeds amazing in the ashram so many people should be encouraged to write poetry one would wonder why what has poetry got to do so i know of uh, you know certain spiritual movements who say why is all this necessary ultimately you have to realize god no so why you need to go through all this then you will only probably enter into some impersonality that's the path of annulment but not fulfillment because there is no base left if that consciousness ever tries to express itself it won't find a base that is ready so now i'll probably ha huh, there i come so then like that you know so this is just one little sample but beautiful sample so then there is uh, for instance the word go nowadays we have so much about cow india is a country which worships the cow and now we have all kinds of story is this side that side and uh, of course cows are wonderful creatures i personally believe that you know <laughs> you shouldn't kill cows <laughs> look into the eyes of the cow one of the most benign creatures who gives you so much in every way how can you really kill your consciousness to be very crude and cruel to really kill a cow so i mean as such to kill an animal for pleasure at least i um personally at rationally thought why should i be a vegetarian though a vegetarian by birth there is an age when you want to reason out everything so myself and another friend of mine so we used to discuss why should we not be non vegetarian so ultimately yes why should you kill an animal for just for your palate of pleasure or and we were in medical college we were told that your hemoglobin bartha and protein all this is all bakwas so you know <laughs> that's the time we went through and we decided but cows if you really look into cow unlike the horse unlike the buffalo unlike the goat unlike the rabbit unlike all those other meats that people see look into the cow she really comes closest to the maternal feeling that is aroused uh, when you you know feel and nowadays cow hugging is uh coming in fashion but that apart it is not about all this okay so it's about the word go so shobindo says the word go in the vedas appears to bear two ordinary meanings so he takes up go on several little roots all this he also discusses with much simpler and directness in secret of the vedas so those who want to <laughs> bypass uh, this was not really seen by shobindo before publishing it which i i personally feel it's not a uh, right thing to do because you know he is the author and um, just because i am a custodian i don't have the right to just you know uh, just as we speak about copyrights so copyrights to an author this is part of that copyright an author has not given permission so one should respect that this is how i i believe but nevertheless 
So the word go in the Vedas appears to bear two ordinary meanings. First cow, secondly ray, light or luster. In the hymns of Madhuchanda, it occurs six times in five hymns. It occurs twice in the fourth hymn addressed to Indra. In the first three verses, and all this he um, says, and then he comes to, uh, obviously as a consequence to the result of the second verse which I translate, Come to us, O bringer out of the nectar. Thou the Soma drinker, drink of the ecstatic Soma wine, a giver of illumination and rapture. Or in better uh, English, bringing out the sense and association of the words, Come to us, O thou who art a distiller of the nectar, thou the Soma drinker, drink of the impetuously ecstatic Soma wine and be in the rapture of its intoxication, our giver of illuminating light. So he's speaking of wherever you know the word cow has come, and then he uh, goes at great lengths. The goddess is in the simile a milch cow. Indra is the milker. In each of the skies, the lower, middle, and higher, he calls to her and makes her bring out the beautiful forms which she reveals to the drinker of the soma. But it is impossible when we take the connection with the two following verses to avoid seeing that he is taking advantage of the double sense of go. And that while in the simile Indra is Goduha, the cow milker, in the subject of the comparison he is Goduha, the bringer out of the illumination, the flashes of higher light which produce the beautiful forms by the power of the goddess. So you see now it, the word Gopala, <laughs> it has a very different meaning. Goloka has a very different meaning. And from there comes Gupt. Is that which is concealed. Why? Because light is concealed. So um, uh, he is Gopala. He is the protector of the light, guardian of the light. And he is the, uh, he milks the cow of plenty. And he is the Dogda. That's how Krishna is described. That he has milched the Upanishads and given us the Gita. So this is how the word go means. Um, the forms are those beautiful and myriad images of things in all the three worlds. The three Akash. Um, the passage describes the condition in which the mind, whether by drinking the material wine or as I hold, by feeding on the internal Amrita is raised to its highest exalted condition before it is taken up into Mahas or Karanam. So this is how the whole illumination and then you know it begins to grow into its fullness and one of these things which consistently comes throughout the writing the sign that you are in a state of a higher inspiration and you are receiving those rays is there is simultaneously a delight so you see the difference between a typical scholarly approach to all these things and when it is the result of an illumination and inner inspiration it invariably brings joy because they come together so, uh, and then this about the go, Shubindu says something very interesting about uh, with a touch of humor. But in the last century, a new scholarship has invaded the country. The scholarship of aggressive and victorious Europe, which for the first time denies the intimate connection and the substantial identity of the Vedas and the later scriptures. We ourselves have made distinctions of Jnana Kand and Karma Kand, Shruti and Smriti. 
but we have never doubted that all these are branches of a single stock. But our new Western pundits and authorities tell us that we are in error. All of us, from ancient Yagnavalk to the modern Vedika, have been making a huge millennial mistake. European scholarship applying for the first time the test of a correct philology to these obscure writings has corrected the mistake. Mask the mark the humor. Okay, sure. <laughs> they have corrected the mistake. After all, you know, we didn't know our own language. <laughs> it is discovered that the Vedas are of an entirely different character from the rest of our Hindu development. For a development has been pantheistic or transcendental, philosophical, mystic, devotional, somber, secretive, centered in the giant names of the Indian trinity, disengaging itself from sacrifice, moving towards asceticism. The Vedas are naturalistic, realistic, ritualistic, semi-barbarous, a sacrificial worship of material nature powers, henotheistic at their highest, pagan, joyous and self-indulgent. Brahma and Shiva do not exist for the Vedas. Vishnu and Rudra are minor, younger and unimportant deities. Many more discoveries of a startling nature. But now familiar to the most ignorant have been successfully imposed on our intellects. The Vedas, it seems, were not revealed to a great and ancient rishis, but composed by the priests of a small invading Aryan race of agriculturists and warriors, akin to the Greeks and Persians, who encamped some 15,000 years before Christ in the Punjab. So, you know, that's how he starts. And after that, you know, you have heard a word, Dhobi Pachar, <laughs> when restless, Dulaik, <laughs> because he's a master in philology and he has got the experience. So after that, when he starts, this is uh, still, but Shubhindi is a gentleman. Eh? Even in his Dhobi Pachad, he is like very friendly and makes you feel, ah, see, I have put you on the ground. Okay, it doesn't matter, get up, let's see from another angle. Ah, see from this angle. Okay, come. <laughs> Again. <laughs> but you will see it much more in secret of the Vedas. Here also you will see it, but... Um, and then he speaks of the what, what really is Vedic religion and what are the Vyahiritis, what is the Maharlok. All this he gives about 15 different uh, aspects of the Vedic religion. I will not go into it because as I said, we will see the upgraded version, the final ones which in secret of the Vedas and hymns to mystic fire which will come. Uh, then uh, the most important interesting part is where at the end he speaks about the origins of Aryan speech. Now, Sanskrit is a very fascinating language. We all know it. And it makes use of every possibility of sound. And Shobindu literally has written A, A, E, E, O, O, E, A, O, A. And each of the root, what it signifies. And what is the deity behind it? A. Vishnu, like that he has written. And he has gone to the roots. Ma, ma means so many things. For instance, to measure. But you see, ma also, yama. So sounds very interesting. Ma, ma is the one who measures out. So she turns the infinite into finite. So she is maya. But she is also yama. So she restrains, measures. From the same root, life comes and death comes. So it 
doesn't yama what does yama do he restrains he will not allow you to go beyond a point so again he measures out so it's very interesting when he speaks about this a whole chapter on the word ma how it's you know and every letter every syllable he has um, marked out and all how with the touching of the tongue with the palate how with the uh, with the nose coming in how the cerebral you know aspect coming into speech and then when you look at uh, our own language it's so fascinating no language has this richness this possibility and this diversity and then he compares it with tamil so all this aryan dravidian divide which has been a creation purely out of pure political gains it just collapses because he has philology to back it up now of course genetic dna and everything has proved that this was a myth which was created that shurabindo speaks of much more in secret of the vedas so we'll talk about it when we come there let me just um, close with um, the last part of um, he he has a chapter in this on the vedic gods who are the vedic gods and wh- what each of them stands for so the gods are at once beings cosmic beings who are given the task of cosmic management but they are also the psychological movement which are inspired by them so the whole concept of god being gods being outside us changes into gods as the uh, gods build up within us the state of divine divinity through our psychological movements who are the asuras and rakshasas they are beings who are outside us they have their own world but they also act upon us to distort to divert to you know the other day we were reading in savitri diverts the messages of the infallible word so uh, when we look at it from that point of view we begin to become conscious of our own psychology what are the movements in which the gods are acting and what are the movements in which gods as aspects and powers of the divine what are the movements in which asuras and rakshasas are acting and then you discover something very interesting about um, human movements there are movements which seem very nice outwardly but deep within they are divisive very interesting and there are movements which may look on the surface as if this divisive but it is going to build unity and harmony so when we start looking behind what is inspiring us that's where we have the secret of the action of the gods and the titans and the battle that goes on within us so these two last bit i'll read the veda proper is karm kand not gyan kand people what is what does it mean so he reveals its aim is not moksha but divine fulfillment this is what the vedic rishis were seeking in this life and the next therefore the vedic rishis accepted plenty and fullness of physical vital and mental being power and joy as the pratishtha or foundation of immortality and did not reject it as an obstacle to salvation they of course they spoke about freedom from ignorance that's the fundamental thing to realize the divine being is the fundamental thing but it was not as a doorway to moksha so they accepted plenty and when we look at the indian civilization that was built around it far from ascetics all the vedic rishis now we of course show them as wearing dhoti with a dadi and you know moving with a kamandali but they were rishis who had weapons celestial weapons who had kamadhenu even the kings uh, kshatriya king vishamitra says what is this arrangement that you have 
that you can feed thousands in the army just like that. So these were the powers they wielded, powers of mind, vital, life, physical, because they were seeking for fulfillment. The world being one in all its parts, every being in it contains the universe in himself. Especially do the great God contain, gods contain all the others and their activities in themselves. So too, Agni, Varun, Indra, all of them are in reality one sole existent deity in many forms. So he combines the pantheistic view with the uh, sense of one divine. Man too is he with a capital H. But he has to fulfill himself here as man. Yet divine, that being is Vrat and Dharma through the Pusa means provided for him by the Veda. So this is our goal. And Shubhindu says that in our true, mother uses the word true domicile, she belongs to a very high region from the overmind. In the Vedas it is said man comes from Swarlok, which is just before the supramental mass. So we have come here for a work and that work is not running away from here. We shouldn't have come here. That work is to work towards a divine creation, a divine manifestation both in the individual and in the world, uh, a divine fulfillment of the race. Namaste.